By show of hands, how many of you have had a great 4th of July weekend? All right, that's like everybody. That's fantastic. Glad to see that. How many of you saw fireworks in the last few days? All right, that's most all of you. How many of you ate a hot dog, apple pie, or drove a Chevrolet in the last few days? All right, that's like uh, most of you there did that also. Well, this is a great time of year. It's a time when we certainly celebrate this nation that we love, and we should do that. We know that it is not a perfect nation. We all know that there are different things that we would change about it if we could, but at the same time, there's nowhere that I would rather live. We recently had the opportunity, <clears throat> Carolyn and myself, to travel to a number of different countries. And there's always just something special and unique when that plane touches down again in the U.S., in our home. And we are praying for our home. We're praying for our nation. We're praying for our leaders, that God would lead, that God would direct, that we might be the people that he would desire for us to be. Having been to several different places recently, I can say that America isn't the only place that has a great nationalism. We saw that in all of the countries that we were. We saw it in Turkey. We saw it in Jordan. We saw it in Egypt. We especially saw it in Egypt. They are a very proud people of their land, and why not? They have a long and a rich history that dates back thousands of years. And it was fascinating to be there and to experience it and to, to study it and come to learn all of what that is about and about their history. And we had a fantastic time while we were there. We enjoy, enjoyed learning not just about the Egyptian history, but how that dovetails together with biblical history. And there's nowhere that that is seen any more plainly or completely than through the man Moses. The man Moses, and we have just started a, a sermon series on Moses, learning, or we're learning from him all about what leading is. If you lead anything at all, this is a study that is going to be, I believe, very, very helpful for you because we're talking about Moses leading through doubt and deliverance. His life is a fascinating case study. And we just kicked that off last week, and we're continuing it on today. We're bringing some of the experiences that Carolyn and I had together in here, and we're dovetailing it with what the Scriptures have to say. It's not about our trip, certainly. It's about Moses. It's about the experience of the Israelites and how their nation, their culture, came together and gelled with and clashed with that of the Egyptians. Somebody came up to me last week when they heard where I had announced that we were going to be going, and one of the places we were going is Egypt, and, and he came up to me and he said, I got to tell you, I was a bit concerned when you told me that you were going to Egypt, because he had seen that about two weeks before we left, there was a bombing right there in Cairo of a tourist bus, and he said, I saw that and I was worried about you, but then I got to thinking, if you died, it would be God's will, right? So thanks for that, Yeah. He said, I would have felt bad, though, because I'm sure that your girls would have missed Carolyn. <laughs> yeah, so I appreciate the love coming from, from uh, at least those of you who had that sort of a perspective. But we got this kicked off last week, and we're going to pick up the story at the end of chapter 1 of Exodus. Exodus is really where you start to see Moses' story. It actually goes kind of through the whole of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, but it especially gets rolling here in Exodus. In Exodus chapter 1, just the very last verse is what we're picking up today, and then on into Exodus chapter 2 as well. So please go ahead and turn there if you would. I'll put a couple of verses on the screen, but for the most part, you're just going to have to get them out of your Bible, out of your Bible app. And there's also an outline there that's going to help you, I believe, follow along and jot some important things down as we go. So last week we saw that the 
nation of Israel was experiencing a tremendous famine, and so they came down from where they were living down into the land of Egypt. And they experienced a very great blessing as they came into the land. Joseph was second in command already at this point, and Pharaoh, the Pharaoh who was in charge at that point, was very favorable toward the Israelites and set them up very well. In fact, you can see the place that they were established is the land of Goshen. Maybe you've heard that before. Here's the Nile River coming up, and then the Nile Delta, very fertile ground. And they were set up in the best part of the land, just the eastern side of that very fertile land. This is where Israel is, and, and things go very, very well for them. For many, many years, they were in the land 430 years. And for those first years, Joseph is there. Things are going spectacularly well. But eventually, things start to turn the tide. You see, the nation starts to grow great, and all of a sudden, the king of Egypt is concerned that the nation of Israel is growing too big, and they're going to get too strong, and so we need to suppress them, and so we're going to issue an edict, and the Pharaoh did, that the Hebrew midwives, if there was a child that they gave birth to, a Hebrew child that was born, that that child had to be killed. And that's what we read about, but we're thankful to the Hebrew midwives who ignored that request or that in instruction from the Pharaoh, and they let those children live and God blessed them as a result but this king wasn't about to give up and he just escalates his edict a little bit further and that's where we pick it up today here right at the end of chapter 1 and verse 22 it says this then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people every Hebrew boy that is born you must throw into the Nile but let every girl live just think for a moment what that would be like I mean, we just kind of read it off the page and say, oh, that's, that's not good. But just think what it would have been like to live there in that time and in that culture. See, now it's not just the Hebrew midwives who are given an instruction. Now it's also all of the Egyptians. You're walking down the street, you see a little Hebrew infant. Take that child and throw it in the Nile. What would that environment have been like? It's no surprise that the Israelites would have been fearful and and disconcerted to say the least in that context they would have been fearful for their own lives they certainly would have been fearful for their children's lives as well but today we're going to see that somehow they muster this courage to face the circumstance to face the trial to face the challenge that is in front of them in fact as we're talking about today we're going to be thinking about the courage to trust that's the name of this sermon here today the courage to trust now it's easy for us to say you should have courage to trust today because we're separated some 3,500 years from that edict and we're half a globe away. But to see what they have done, the courage that they needed to muster is incredible and it's intense. And to understand completely what this is like, we need to put ourselves into the context and we need to understand a little bit about the Pharaoh himself. Pharaohs were kings. They were the absolute leader of the nation, and their power was absolute. And uh, here, just to, by example, this is one of the places that we travel to. This is called Abu Simbel. This is a temple that was built to this guy. It was built by this guy for this guy. His name was Ramses II. He was considered to be the greatest pharaoh of all of Egypt, and he ruled for some 67 years. Very, very powerful. All four of these, actually this one's kind of broken down. You can see some of it down here. Kind of broken down, but all four of these are the same guy. It's this Ramses II. And I left these people in here intentionally so you can see the size and the scale. This is what he thought of himself. And this is what pharaohs did because they were absolute. If they said something, that was law. If they wanted something, that's what you 
did. The pharaohs were considered to be semi-divine while they lived, but they had the opportunity to become fully-fledged gods in the afterlife. And so they paid a lot of attention to what that would be like for the future. And that's why you have these massive pyramids and these incredible tombs, because they're setting themselves up for the future. That's what a pharaoh was all about, if he could make his way into the afterlife. And so there was a lot of attention given, and you can see hieroglyphics, and you can see actually the the beauty of the color of all. And you see, uh, just as a little aside, so often you see the hieroglyphics, or you see the massive walls, all the Egyptian art, and it's just kind of bare, right? It's impressive, but it's bare. Well, it all would have been very much colored like this. It's just that the color is faded. This is some that hasn't faded inside one of the tombs. Uh, and temples that we visited, and uh, incredible to say the least. But all of this is a story. It's a story about how worthy the king is. It's a story about how you make your way into the afterlife. So after he's dead and he's in the tomb, he's got that instruction. He also has all of the exploits that he's accomplished written there so that the gods would look favorably on him so that he might make his way into the afterlife. A king's tomb would have had a lot of different rooms because he's putting his stuff in there. He's putting treasures and gold and food and thrones and chairs whatever he thought he would need for the afterlife they stuffed all into their tombs and so it's fascinating to think about what those would have looked like unfortunately we don't have a lot of information about that because the tombs were all looted because how did they find them well you've got a pyramid a pyramid is basically a huge advertisement that says look here the wealthiest man in Egypt put all of his stuff here so it's like well that's not hard to find But eventually they got wise to that, and so they stopped building pyramids. All of a sudden, there are no more pyramids that are being built, in large part because they wanted to stop advertising, here's where you can come get all the stuff. And so we don't have tombs to go and look at to say, well, here is exactly what it would have been like, with one exception. There was one tomb that was not discovered until 1922 by the archaeologist Howard Carter. And that tomb is the one that belonged to King King Tut, King Tutankhamun. And that's why he is so famous today. It's not because he did anything worth being celebrated. He only reigned nine years. He was the boy king, died about age 18 or 19, and he died suddenly. And so his tomb is not all that impressive. Normally the first thing a king did is he would order that his tomb would be built because it took years and years and years and years and years to do it. For him, he only lived nine years or reigned nine years, and so it wasn't that well prepared. But as they open it up, and it also looks like it was a little bit haphazard the way that they filled it up, but you've got all sorts of things in here that he has placed in there or wanted in there for the benefit of his future, for his afterlife. And these things are now on display in the Cairo Museum. We had the opportunity to go and look at all of these things, some of the stuff that were in there. This is like his sandals and uh, his casket. He had three caskets, one inside the other. The innermost one was solid gold. Here's his throne and his famous face mask. He was mummified, and this is the mask that would have been placed over his face as he was placed inside the coffin. Also, what you can see there on display in the Cairo Museum that we also saw it in his tomb is a chariot. And this chariot is probably a little bit after the time of the Exodus, but it gives us a, a good glimpse at what it might have looked like, those chariots that chased after the Israelites as they left Egypt. 
and they got swallowed up in the, the Red Sea, if you remember that story. We'll be getting to that story a little bit later on in future weeks as well. So fascinating stuff that is happening here. And the reason that they needed to make that hasty escape through the Red Sea was because of the oppression of the pharaohs. So they were in Egypt for 430 years and went very well at the beginning. Joseph eventually goes off the scene. He dies. And now over these 430 years, just the tide starts to turn. And the kings don't remember with such favor the Israelites as they did before. And so now they're being oppressed greatly. And the setting of that is described for us, or that's what brings us into Exodus chapter 2. So let's take a look at this, again, from your scriptures Exodus chapter 2, verse 1. Here's what it says. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. That hardly needs to be said, does it? I mean, doesn't every mother believe that their child is a fine child, that they're a beautiful child? Of course they do. Not every mother's right, but every mother believes that, Right? Of course they do. Of course they do. What is amazing to me is able to keep the kid quiet for three months. It's hard enough to keep a a kid quiet for 30 minutes during a sermon at church, let alone for three months. But that's what happens here, verse 3. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed a child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. While we were there, we had the opportunity to sail on the Nile River, and at one point we came across this scene right here. This is one of our pics. These are reeds along the Nile River. Well, how are you going to go past that and not think about and talk about this story? You are. We could just imagine the basket of Moses stuck right there in these reeds. In fact, we kind of looked around to see if we might find anybody in a basket. We didn't, but we looked. So, verse 5, then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants walking along the riverbank, with her attendants walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Now, what is the standing order of dad? Kill him. Kill him. That's exactly what she's supposed to do, having found this Hebrew baby baby. She doesn't do that. She takes pity on him. Verse 7, then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, who are all these people? His sister, Moses' sister. You may remember her name is Miriam. She is standing there while Moses gets discovered. Is that a coincidence? No, it is not. She says to Pharaoh's daughter, the one who finds Moses there in the basket, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. This is such an awesome series of events. And it all ends with Moses' own mother being asked by Pharaoh's daughter to go ahead and nurse him and raise him, and I'll pay you for it. Isn't that awesome? How many of you are like, I wish somebody would pay me to raise my child? Well, yeah, you could if you do it the same way. You just have to give them away first. Some of you are like, I'm open to that. 
Yeah, I'd be, I'd, be, I'd be down for that. This is also a stunning development because Pharaoh's daughter is acting in direct opposition to the decree of her father. Not that any daughter has ever done that since, <laughs> right? Yeah, well, actually, it just goes to show you, if you disobey your dad, you just might end up with a child. All right, that's the first, place, first time we see that is right here in this text. You didn't know that, did you? But there it is. But seriously, this is one of the reasons that we can have the courage to trust, namely because this, first thing for your outline, because God accomplishes his purposes. Because God accomplishes his purposes. There are so many places that this situation could have gone, gone bad. Moses could have been discovered during those first three months of his life. Didn't happen. Moses might not have been looked on with favor by Pharaoh's daughter when she pulled him out of the Nile. That didn't happen. They might not have paid any attention to Miriam when she said, hey, you want me to go get this lady over here, one of these Hebrew women? That might not have happened. So many things could have gone differently than they did, but none of those things happened because God accomplishes his purposes because he is carrying these things out. But there's something else that I want you to notice here. Moses' mother and father, presumably his father also, are active participants in this plan. They're not just at home thinking, I hope things go okay for Moses down there in the Nile. Not even just at home praying, I hope things go okay down at the Nile. They're busy. They're active. They're taking part in this. They're putting that basket, there is no doubt in my mind, in a specific place. Because people knew where Pharaoh's daughter came down to bathe. She, they knew that her favorite spot to go on down. And so no doubt that is where they have placed this basket. There's no coincidence at all that Miriam just happens to be just the right distance away so she can see it so she's not in kind of a, a life-threatening sort of thing she's not she's not watching over them too closely and so she's there ready to execute the plan that no doubt Jochebed Moses mother had instructed her on leading up to that point and I'm sure that she carried off her part beautifully the point is that God chooses to use people who are willing to participate in his purposes trust me God could have orchestrated Moses being spared by any of a number of other means but he chooses to use people to do that which is the way that it happens throughout the scriptures throughout the scriptures no doubt about that God could have spared Egypt and Israel from the seven-year-long famine without Joseph he could have just provided enough food, but instead he chooses to use Joseph. Could have defeated the Philistines without David, but he wanted to use David. There was a lesson that was to be learned for David and for others. Could have just caused churches to rise up throughout Asia Minor, but he doesn't do that. He sends Paul, the Apostle Paul, to go to all of those different places. He could have just made Pathway an awesome place that is fully funded by whatever he just dropped into our bank, but instead he uses us to provide for those things. And so many of you have come through in big ways in recent days, and we'll tell more about that as we have all the, the financials put together. But some exciting things, very exciting things that have been happening in that regard. Well, God uses people so that we might be a part of the blessing as well. And that's what's going on right here. He fills us with the talents and the resources and the faithfulness that we need, and then he sets us loose to do his purposes. Sometimes we, we can see where this is going. If I step in and I serve in this way according to this talent that God has given to me, I can anticipate that this is probably what's going to come about, and it does. But he uses our own wisdom that he has blessed us with. Other times we don't know exactly where it's going, but we can trust, we can have the courage to trust because God accomplishes his purposes. 
We can certainly see it in this case here. And if there's a better case than this, I'm not sure what it is. God is overseeing what is going on. Now, before we move on here, there's another question that comes to my mind. Where did all of this happen? Where did all of this happen? Where Moses is discovered? Because I've always had it wrong. I've always assumed that, well, it must be there in the land of Goshen. Actually, to be honest with you, I never really thought about it until I went to Egypt. It must be there in the land of Goshen. That's where the people were living, lived there 430 years. That's where God set them up, or the Pharaoh set them up. And so the Nile runs there. It must just be where it happened. But it wouldn't have been where it happened. And here's why. There was a period of time when that is where the capital was in that near vicinity. Here you can see Memphis is actually the ancient capital of Israel. The earliest capital, or excuse me, Egypt, that was ever established was in Memphis, which is right here, basically where it starts to fork off, the Nile starts to fork off through this fertile land toward the Mediterranean Sea. But when Moses is around, there are two different timelines exactly when Moses lived, but according to either one of them, when Moses was around, the capital had been moved farther down to the south to this place called Thebes, which is today called Luxor. Luxor. And there's an incredible temple that we saw there. There's actually a couple of temples. Very incredible. Um, this is one of them. This is the Karnak Temple. 700 acres of temple. And between the Luxor Temple, which is amazing, and the Karnak Temple, which is amazing, there is this three-mile-long stretch. It's called the Avenue of the Sphinx. And there are hundreds of Sphinx that are set up right along there, that entire thing. Some of it is still yet to be unearthed. There are houses on it and what have you now. But anyway, it was an incredible sight. And Moses, for sure, would have hung out at the Karnak Temple, this one right here. Because that's where the capital was, down in Luxor or Thebes at that time. And this was the temple. The Luxor temple, maybe, maybe not, depending on the timetable. But he would have hung out here. He would have been schooled here. He would have seen the sacrifices that took place here. He would have participated in services and experiences here. He would have been taught in this place and in the surrounding area and in the nearby palace. This is where it would have been. This is where it would have happened, which is stunning to me. And to walk among these ruins and to just think of those circumstances just just was spellbinding to us as we were there and as we took it in. Moses, we are told, was raised up as an Egyptian. He's the son of the Pharaoh's daughter, so he would have been in the palace. In fact, as you look into the New Testament, we have a speech by Stephen in Acts chapter 7 where he's talking to the Sanhedrin, and he actually brings up Moses. And here's what he says, Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. That's Moses, the first 40 years of his life. And there's no doubt that God accomplished his purposes in that life, and he was going to continue to do so, but his life's about to take a dramatic turn, verse 11. One day, after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them in all their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, looking this way and that and seeing no one. He killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? 
Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard this, heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. This is a very complicated passage. And it's raised a lot of questions. And the chief question among them is, was Moses justified in killing the Egyptian? Many people say, well, absolutely he was justified because here you have this poor Hebrew slave. He's helpless. He's being maybe even killed. And so Moses steps in and he defends him. In fact, in Stephen's speech in Acts chapter 7, that's the sort of language that is used is that Moses was there defending the man who couldn't defend himself. So people say absolutely justified. And there might be something to that, but Moses' actions also seem to indicate that he knows there's something wrong in this because it says that he looks all around to make sure nobody's looking before he kills the Egyptian. And then it says that he hides him in the sand. And then as soon as this discovered, Pharaoh's irate and Moses flees for Midian. He leaves the country. He leaves the land. Yet Acts 7.25 in that Stephen speech makes it clear that Moses believed that he was acting on God's behalf and taking the life of the Egyptian. And so there's some confusion in this and exactly what is going on here. And it could be that, that maybe this is technically justifiable. I mean, God is going to call on Moses to free the Israelites from the Egyptians. But if at the very least, he's jumping the gun here. He's acting on his own. He's acting apart from what God's complete purposes are for him. And so while it technically might be justifiable, we would kind of expect that there might be some greater consequences that would fall on Moses, even greater than what happens. Though maybe we don't completely understand all of the consequences that he is experiencing here. For instance, Acts 7.25 indicates that the Israelites didn't embrace Moses. Even when we see the two guys are fighting and the two Israelites are now kind of against Moses. Or later on, we find when Moses ends up leading the people through the wilderness. We'll get to that eventually. But when we see him there, that many times the people aren't listening to his leadership or aren't listening to his guidance. This is something that kind of keeps coming back against him. It would have been a consequence of what's going on here. Secondly, Moses has to flee for his life and leave the luxury of all that he's known for 40 years. Thirdly, we find that he has to leave his own people and go to the land of Midian, which is basically on the entire other side of the Sinai Peninsula, a long way away, and live in the wilderness. On top of that, I believe there are long-term consequences for Moses as it regards to entering into the promised land. Now, we're specifically told in the scriptures there are other factors that weighed into him not being able to go into the promised land, but I wouldn't be surprised if this is part of it as well. So Moses finds himself in the, as a stranger among a foreign people, these Midianites, but Moses shows kindness to them when he goes there, and they reciprocated that right away. In fact, if you read the passage there, it sounds almost like Moses was kind to them. They invited him to dinner, and he went home with a spouse. It, it reads like it went that fast, and then there's, then there's a child that comes on the scene as well. And for the next 40 years, Moses lives as a foreigner in a foreign land. And we would be tempted to think, oh man, what a waste. What a waste for poor Moses. He had everything going his way. And now he's stuck out in the wilderness, wasting 40 years. But it's not a waste. It's not a waste at all. It's another reason that we can have the courage to trust. And it's because God never wastes an experience. 
God never wastes an experience. Moses had two very different 40-year-long experiences. He had the, had the privilege of living in the, the palace. He, while he was there, he would have learned all about politics. He would have learned about power. He would learn about having positions of prestige and position. He would have learned what it meant to live in the palace and to, to experience the mindset of the Pharaoh himself. And don't think for a moment that when Moses comes to the place where he's invited to go back to Egypt and maybe free those people, that that experience that he had had growing up those 40 years wasn't very much playing on his mind. Don't think for a moment that that was a wasted experience because he's going to be reflecting on that as God calls him forward. We'll see that next week. The next 40 years couldn't have been more different. Moses goes from all of the activity and excitement and prestige of the palace to the wilderness to the wilderness, to be out there on his own. These are his green acres years, if you will. Goes from having everything to living in the wilderness. And if you don't understand the green acres reference, after the service, just look for somebody in the lobby who's old and go up to them and say, you look old. What is the green acres thing all about? All right, you try that. You let me know how that goes. All right, but at least you'll figure it out. These are very different years from him, and they might seem like they're wasted for a time, but they are definitely not. If the time in Egypt was all about politics and power and fueling his ego, the time in the wilderness was all about learning a new perspective, patience, perspective, humility. And having that time in the wilderness and learning how to live in the wilderness is going to be something else that he's going to draw on. Though he might not completely understand all of that in the moment. See, the bottom line is that God never wastes an experience. And God doesn't waste them today either. You might be living in a palace sort of experience right now. Things are going very well. It's sort of like luxury. And you're like, why does God bless me in the way that he has? Well, he's blessed you in that way for a reason. Because he never wastes an experience and the things that you're learning in the moment are things that God is teaching you for a reason. And it's important that you would be asking yourself, how is it that I'm supposed to learn from this? What is it that this should be motivating me to do? Not just sit back and enjoy it all, but rather there is something that God is using this for in my life. What is that? God, show me. Help me to learn. How am I to pay this forward? How am I to use this experience for your glory and for your benefit? Or you might be here today and you might be saying, you know what, my life is more like a wilderness right now. Things are not going well. Things have been very painful. It is not just wasted time. This is an opportunity for you to learn and to grow. And God is going to teach you in this for the benefit of the present and for the future. Because here's the thing. The lessons of our present experience are going to be the truths of our future endeavors. The lessons of our present experience are going to be the truths of our future endeavors. There's something you're going through right now that you will be able to draw on for the future. For your blessing, for the blessing of others, maybe for the teaching of your children. Even if you are where you are today and you know it because it's a hole that you dug for yourself, God never wastes an experience. So wherever you are, lean into God. Ask him to teach and to lead and to guide and to instruct, and he will. And the circumstance you're in right now is going to be for your benefit.
And with that, we're given a little glimpse back into Egypt as this chapter comes to a close. Just very quickly, we've got 40 years, Moses is in Egypt. 40 years, Moses is on the other side of the Sinai in the wilderness. While he's there, he comes to understand there's still something going on back over in Egypt. Verse 23. During that long period, while he's in the wilderness, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites, Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. When Moses fled to Midian, the Israelites were already being treated poorly. Now another 40 years have gone by, and this testimony says things have only escalated. They've only gotten worse and worse since then. So the people are calling out to God for help. And verse 24 tells us that God remembered them. He remembered his promise to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. It's another reason they can have courage to trust because God remembers his promises. God remembers his promises. You can bet there were a lot of days when the Israelites were under the oppression of those Egyptian taskmasters when they wondered, God, where are you? Are you there at all? Are you paying attention? Do you realize that we're here? Do you realize what we're going through? Do you know what this experience is like for us? It's a natural reaction when things get tough. You might be experiencing it yourself right now. But Moses who is our author here, says that God remembered and that he was, what's the word, was concerned about them. I love that description. How often in the scriptures do you read, this was the circumstance and God did this. This was the circumstance and God did this. Here you read, this was the circumstance and God was concerned. I love that because it tells us about the heart of God. That he's not just acting on his own accord, that he's not just doing his own thing, and I hope you guys do okay. He's saying God was concerned. He felt compassion for them. And just as the Israelites could have had the courage to trust because God remembered them, remembered his promises to them, God will never forget his promises to us either. There are so many that he has given to us so very, very many. In fact, we did a whole series here very recently on the promises of God. And there we saw the fact that God loves. He promises to love. He promises to forgive. He promises to provide for our need. He promises to provide according to his abundant riches. He promises to give us care and compassion. He promises to watch over us. He promises to give us his son his son Jesus, that we might have life, that we might have hope, that we might have a future in the midst of whatever it is that seems to be threatening that future for us right now. So we're told that the Lord remembered his promises to Israel. And that's great. That's good to know. But what did he, what did he do about those promises. That's so very important. And the answer is coming next week. We're going to talk about that. As we move on in this series, I hope that you're learning something from this. 
I've been learning a lot through this, through the trip and all that. I I just want to keep bringing some of that together with what the scriptures have to say, and hopefully we can continue to grow together. I'm very excited about the thing that we get to next week, one of the best-known parts of the whole of the Moses story. We're going to pick it up in chapter 3. If you want to read ahead, you go for it. I'd love to have you reading ahead and seeing what's coming and thinking about all of that as we anticipate what is ahead. So... Thanks for your attention. Thanks for paying attention. And don't ever forget that you can have the courage to trust because God accomplishes his purposes, because God never wastes an experience, and God remembers his promises. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your goodness, for the fact that you had a plan in mind that you carry out, and as, and as spectacular as it seems to us, that there would be a baby in a basket in a river, that a daughter of a pharaoh would find him and then ask his very own mother to do what the mother was longing to do. Lord, stunning, (laughs) amazing. And we're thankful that that's the sort of God you are because you have that same sort of care for us. And whatever it is that we are facing and walking through right now, we thank you for the fact that your promises are true that your grace remains upon us and that we can lean into it. And for your goodness, for your kindness, we give you glory in Jesus' name. Amen.